I'm not really even sure what these headphones do. I don't think they are gonna do anything. <laughs> I'm a little confused by this whole thing. Sorry, I should have had this figured out. Okay, I don't even think these headphones are doing anything. I don't really know what I'm doing with this microphone. Hello, hello. Jane, apparently there's deer in my yard. Hold on. Whoa! Eating the apple. Oh. oh my gosh! You gotta take a picture of that, Cam. He's looking right at me. You gotta take a video of that. That's nuts to see this deer sitting in your yard, like our fenced-in yard. This is Wyoming, folks. According to the American Psychiatric Association, post-traumatic stress disorder does not just happen to combat veterans. It can happen to anyone. On their website, psychiatry.org, the APA states that people with PTSD have intense, disturbing thoughts and feelings related to their experience that last long after the traumatic event has ended. They may relive the event through flashbacks or nightmares. They may feel sadness, fear, or anger, and they may feel detached or estranged from other people. 21-year-old Jane shares with us her experience with PTSD after a very dangerous ectopic pregnancy. If this is a topic that is difficult for you, please use discretion while listening. All right, so why don't you just start and introduce yourself to us and just tell us a little bit about who you are as a person, just who is Jane? Who is Jane? That's a good question. Jane has changed a lot throughout the years. So answering that now is way different than it would have been a month ago or last year or four years ago. But Jane right now is, um, I work as a data analyst and I'm a huge data nerd. My life revolves around it. And my company is about personal finance and so I spend a lot of time with my own personal finances or learning about the finance world. And when I'm not working, what I do instead is like jigsaw puzzles or I spend a lot of time outside. I play pickleball, which is super fun if you haven't picked that up this year. And this year I started mountain biking. So I'm always trying to like challenge myself in physical activity. Yeah, I didn't know that about you with puzzles. I... I'm obsessed. I love puzzles with all my heart. Yeah, I do. So I love that we have that in common. That's really fun. Yeah, I didn't know that either. Yeah, I so I have a special way. Like when I do puzzles, I refuse to look at the box. It's one of my um, personal challenges I give myself. So I never, ever look at the box when I do a puzzle. <laughs> Me neither. <laughs> Are you serious? I'm serious. When I love that. Everybody thinks that's so weird. No, it's half the fun is discovering what it is. I know. I love that. So I would love for you to tell us a little bit about what your thoughts were about mental illness, that broad term, before you experienced your own trials with it. Yeah, I mean, I didn't have, because I didn't have personal experience with it, I knew it was real. I knew it wasn't something people made up. So I had... Um, like I know a lot of people who would suffer with or struggle with mental illness or have suffered from it, uh, like my family members or friends or just people I know. So I try to have empathy with them, but I felt like I couldn't really connect because I didn't know what it was like. When my sister would talk about anxiety, I had no idea what she was talking about. So I kind of struggled with a little bit of a disconnect there. 
And I felt like I was lucky because I didn't have that in high school. I made it through high school without like struggling with mental illness. So in some ways, I feel like I lucked out. So did you have any stigma in your mind associated with mental illness or any sort of preconceived notions or stereotypes that you kind of subscribe to about it? Um, I didn't think that I did. And then after experiencing it, I realized how many judgments I was making about myself now that I was struggling with mental illness. And it made me realize that I definitely did have preconceived notions and stigma that I didn't realize before. There was one occasion where I was really struggling. Um, I went to a rodeo. It was last year and I had a super hard time. I was completely overstimulated and did not want to be there. And and on my drive home and I realized that I was freaking out because I was suddenly this girl who couldn't do things like I, I couldn't go to the rodeo and I couldn't I wanted to make all these excuses for for not being able to attend events or accomplish things and I was so judgmental of myself for feeling that way that I realized I had judged other people for doing the same thing so that's so interesting because even for me, like I've known I've had OCD my whole life, but uh, it always is changing. And during quarantine, a new facet of it for me was the depression aspect, which I had never really experienced before. And I think that I struggled to understand people with depression until it was something that became all consuming to me. And then I, I had the same revelation that you did, which is, wow, you know, this is real. And this is something that I didn't understand before. So tell us a little bit about how you first encountered mental illness in your own life. So I had a major trauma happen to me, and that is what set off, I suppose, my mental illness and my mental health struggles. But as I was thinking about this podcast and what I wanted to say, I realized that it went back farther and I didn't know. I didn't like piece that together for a couple of years. While I was in college, I ended up working full time and then working like 60 or 70 hours a week during one of my semesters. And it completely broke me. I mean, I couldn't handle it. I couldn't handle the stress or the number of activities. So I started failing assignments and missing class and breaking down at work. So I struggled through that and ended up making it through and moving to part-time school and then moving to online school. But I didn't really identify that as where my journey with mental health began or mental illness. But I really think it does start there because that kind of set the foundation for what happened to me later. So I had an ectopic pregnancy, which is a pregnancy that occurs not in the uterus. It can be a number of places. So I had a pregnancy in my right fallopian tube and I had no clue I was pregnant. I was on, I have an IUD, so I was on birth control, super un, unplanned, super unexpected, obviously. And when I found out I was pregnant, I thought I had like a UTI. So it really caught me off guard and I ended up having surgery the same day. You found out you were pregnant when you went in for the UTI and then you had surgery that day for the pregnancy. Right, so I went to the urgent care and I said, I think I have a UTI and they just did a normal test, which includes a pregnancy test, and found out that it was positive. So that same day I went to the hospital and had surgery there. What was going through your mind 
when they said that you were pregnant when that was so completely unexpected? I had no idea how to process that. And my first thought was that my mom was going to be mad. <laughs> but of course she wasn't. And she was like really concerned for my health and wellness because they figured it was an ectopic pregnancy and that can be really dangerous that I found out. So I went home from my surgery and I was dealing with recovering. And then it became this huge drawn out experience where I had to keep going back and getting more medicine and go and getting ended up having another surgery because the pregnancy wouldn't stop growing inside me. So my fallopian tube ended up bursting about six weeks after my first surgery. And I didn't know that it had burst. And I woke up the next day bleeding internally, passed out in my house. And I, when I went into surgery, they found out I had two liters of blood in my abdomen. Oh my God. Yeah. So that's about like 40% of my blood volume. So it turned from this like super unexpected, weird pregnancy into a six week horror story of me being in and out of the hospital. And by the end of it, I was completely spent. It took everything from me. How long did you have to stay in the hospital? Um, I was only in the hospital for one night. So I had a couple of blood transfusions while well, during the surgery and then afterward, but they didn't have to keep me very long. It was a lapros laparoscopic surgery. So it wasn't a lot of physical healing time from that perspective. So after this crazy drawn out experience of not having any control over my body and having all of this pain and trauma and being in the hospital, I, the emotional was like, I couldn't even feel anything or think about anything or make it to work or do my homework. I couldn't do anything. So at this point, this was last year, um, I was in online school and I had a full-time job at a bank. So I was able to take time off from my job to just recover from the surgery. My boss was super understanding and everyone was worried about me having to have surgery, obviously. So that wasn't um, a problem. I just, I, like recovering from surgery, I expected it to be more physical, but it was way more mental. Right. So tell me a little bit about that, the, the mental healing that took place. Did you seek any sort of help? Um, not really at first. I was pretty rattled, so I just wanted to collect myself and calm back down and, and spend more time in my house and just be back to being a normal person. So I had a lot of help from my boyfriend at the time, which was nice. He was like super there for me, super present. And I spent some time with my family and my mom brought me dinner. Like I had really good support from my family and friends. But when I went back to work after a week, I started realizing how not okay I was. So I would go to work and then any small thing would happen. I would get frustrated with a problem or one of my spreadsheets wouldn't work correctly. And I just couldn't deal. I had to like leave work and go spend time in my car to calm myself down or take a walk and, and listen to some music. And I started realizing that I wasn't really okay. And then I did seek help. I talked to my mom about finding a therapist. I, I'm, I want, I'm interested to know when you said that the experiences was so rattling, do you think when you kind of untangle it in your mind, 
which parts of it do you think were particularly traumatic? I think the whole experience sounds completely traumatic to me, <laughs> but what were the parts? Did, did you have nightmares afterwards or were there things that scared you or was there just an overall sense of anxiety and panic? That's a good question. Digging into trauma is it's kind of hard sometimes to identify specific things, but I think I have an answer. Afterward, there was, I had a lot of fear about ever having a child, ever being pregnant again, or having that happen to me again in any way. I could not fathom the idea of being able to have a kid of my own. And so to deal with that fear, I was able to say, okay, if I don't want to have kids, I don't have to. And I kind of let go of that expectation I had for myself so that I could just be okay and not have to worry about the trauma happening again as, as directly. So there was definitely that fear, but there was also, I mean, a, a, a social thing. One of my, a person I don't know very well, um, we were running errands together, which sounds like we know each other well, but we don't. And <laughs> we were in Walmart and they made a, an offhanded comment about looking at baby clothes because they knew what had happened. And it was just a really poorly timed comment, but it totally destroyed me because I was like, wait a second. Do people think that I was like attached to this pregnancy as a baby? And that that's what I'm, that's what I'm losing because I didn't feel that way at all. And so I realized that there might be like a social expectation if I talk about ectopic pregnancy where people were attached to the idea of a baby. <laughs> that makes sense. Yeah, no, that does make sense because I mean, you were totally unprepared for that experience emotionally. Um, and so to you, it, it, it's not like there was an, you hadn't formed a sort of attachment to whatever. Not I mean, all. you didn't even know that you had you didn't even know you had anything growing inside of you and then it was gone. Right. Right. And it was, it was like, and yeah, it was never a viable pregnancy. And I was only like five weeks. It was really early. So I had never formed an attachment to the idea of a baby or never really considered that as the end of this pregnancy, because for me, it was all about the pain and the trauma and the surgery. And so that cast a whole new light on the kind of problems I had to worry about. <laughs> Right. So then you worried about how people might perceive you. Did you worry, like, am I, did you think to yourself, am I heartless? You know, did you start to, to have inner judgment about your feelings? Absolutely. Yes. <laughs> yes. That's the only answer. And I didn't know much about ectopic pregnancy before. I mean, I didn't know anything. I realized what it was, but I didn't know it's one in 80 women experience an ectopic pregnancy whether they're trying to conceive or not. And so a lot of the research and trying to find support online that I did immediately following was kind of unsuccessful because so many women who share their story are trying to conceive and looking forward to having a child. And I didn't feel that way at all. I had never attached that. So I had to figure out how to validate my loss and my grief and my pain without that. Yeah, that's a really, really, really interesting point. Because the grief that you suffered wasn't what most women who, who have that kind of pregnancy suffer. Most of them are suffering at the loss of what they were hoping for. And for you, it was um, so much, so much different than that. And so um, tell me a little bit more about after you went back to work, 
and life was resuming as normal. And you said you had to go sometimes to your car just to settle down and things like that. What other kinds of symptoms were you experiencing? Like, were you having physical panic symptoms or um, was there depression involved? Yeah, um, definitely both physical and emotional symptoms. The best way I can describe it is dissociated. I don't remember like any of the food I ate or like it, how it could taste or anything I could smell. Like, I don't remember being checked in at all to what was going on around me. And that was a really confusing symptom because I'm normally super engaged, especially at work, because I feel like I thrived in that environment. So I was just like a shell is how it felt. Wow. How long did that last? Um, a few months, maybe almost six months. It took a long time. There were moments where I would reconnect. Like I remember specifically there's one day I walked into work and someone was making coffee and the smell of coffee was like so overwhelming. I realized that I had not been connected to my environment at all for weeks at that point. So it was just that one moment, the scent of coffee that brought me back in. What happened with the therapist? You said that your mom was helping you find one. Did you find one that you liked? Yes. So I have an amazing, amazing, amazing therapist. <laughs> she is the only reason I made it through this. Um, her name is Trish and I was referred to her through like our work insurance and I started seeing her and I went in with like, okay, I have a trauma and I think I have PTSD from it and I need to get better. And I went in with the total fix it mindset. And the first like two or three sessions, she didn't even dig into my trauma at all. She wanted to know about who I was and about what I wanted and my values and my goals and just did not join me in the fix it mindset. And I was like, wait a second, this isn't what I came here for. But obviously I realized she knows what she's doing and this isn't something I could just fix and be done with. I, that's really powerful that that's the approach that she took. It was, let me get to know you and not just you in terms of your problems, but the person that you are and how this circumstance fits into your story. That's, that's really cool. It was amazing. She took me out of my trauma in that way and I didn't have to keep living in it and trying to dissect it and, and like relive each piece and try to understand how I felt. I just got to, rebuild myself because my trauma took I mean I don't want to be dramatic but it took everything from me it took me to a place where I had no comfort zone and no trust with anybody else or myself so I felt like I mean I think that's what people would call rock bottom <laughs> where right. I felt like I had nothing I I had nothing to hold on to in myself or my life, even though I had this wonderful support system and family and, and structure, emotionally, I was so, so lost. And so what Trish did is connected me back in to who I am and what I want and helped me rebuild. So you said that you're still seeing her. So what, tell me about how this mental illness experience with PTSD, how did it change who you are and your perspective on mental health? I mean, it changed everything, honestly. I've had a lot of change in my life anyway, but I feel like because my 
I mean, this trauma happened when I was 19 while I was in my last year of school, while I was with a different partner than I am now. And so it feels like my recovery and all the work I've done to grow from my trauma has also just grown into my life. And that's why it was so difficult for me to put all my thoughts on paper about this earlier today, because it's in every aspect of who I am now, like how I've grown and learned and recovered from this defines who I am right now. That's awesome. Can you give me a couple examples of that? Yes. The biggest change in my life is the amount of time I spend in my own head. I feel like I live extra lives inside my head because I spend so much time thinking or connecting with how I'm feeling or, I mean, mainly just thinking about how I'm feeling, I guess. (laughs) I want to ask a little bit more about that mindfulness aspect. What are some of the things that you do and in what kinds of circumstances and places do you do them? Like, what is it reflection, journaling? What are some of the techniques that you use? Um, in the beginning, like last summer, I guess, right after the pregnancy happened, walking was my number one recovery mechanism. So when I got stressed at work or needed to take a break just in general, I would go outside for a walk and listen to music or listen to a podcast. There's a really awesome podcast called The Secular Buddhism Podcast by Noah Rochetta. What what is the prem, like what is the podcast centered around? Um I mean it's centered around Buddhism but from a secular standpoint. So the first five episodes walk through the basic pillars of Buddhism, but then the rest of the episodes are just about how you can apply principles of it to your own life to be a better person or to be more mindful or just practice non-judgmental thinking. There's just a lot of great self-help tips, I guess. Oh, that's cool. That sounds like a really, something that's very positive. And in the world we live in that is so chaotic and so full of conflict, that just seems like such a valuable, um, that seems like such valuable material that everybody should probably be listening to. (laughs) (laughs) I agree. So definitely walking, listening to podcasts, listening to music, and that type of mindful action, I suppose. Not, I haven't done as much specific meditating. I also spent a lot of time in my apartment pool last summer. This is going to sound funny, but definitely one of my recovery mechanisms is I get home from work and change into my swimsuit and just go float in the pool for like an hour. I wouldn't do anything. I wouldn't swim. I would just float with some pool noodles and just hang out. And it allowed me to be free and my, I mean, I was floating. So it was like a sensory thing at the same time. So my mind was calm enough to be able to work through my day and not let the stress get to me. Well, and how often do we do something like that that is free from devices? Mm-hmm. Like, I think that people say, well, I like to unwind by watching a show. Like, that's how I am. Or I like to unwind by just scrolling on Facebook or whatever. But how often do we do something that really where we can't have any sort of device and all we have are our thoughts? And I think that that is really powerful when you get to a place where you are comfortable with your own thoughts and you enjoy being there, if that makes sense. And I I used to love, I still love, I just don't get to do it very often swimming for that reason, Mm -hmm. because it's you and the water and there's no cell phone, there's no television. And all you're doing is thinking and working. And it's, it's pretty amazing. I agree. And I still try to do that, like not float in my pool because I've moved, but 
this year I sat on my porch and watched the leaves on my trees grow. That was my spring activity. And that kind of time for myself, it took a while to be okay with that kind of time. Like you said, enjoy it. I didn't enjoy it at first. There was a lot of pain and and suffering that happened originally. But as I recovered and as I built my strength and my self-love and my self-compassion and all these habits and tactics for self-soothing, I was able to have that time in my own head where I could enjoy it. So kind of summarizing just some of the things that you've said here in your process of healing from the trauma, getting connected with a therapist who really understood what you needed and taking more time for feeling, feeling your emotions and for self-reflection and then being active. Those are kind of some mm-hmm. of the th- three of the things that I've heard. Is there anything else that I'm missing as what you consider a really vital part of your recovery? My support system. I don't think I've given them enough credit, <laughs> but my, I mean, my family specifically, family means everything to me. Number one value is my family and you know, my family They're Yeah, <laughs> they are. So any moment of doubt or struggle, oh, I'm going to get emotional at this. Any moment I needed any of my family members, they were there for me instantly. I could call my mom or text my sister's and just express how I was feeling. And they gave me so much compassion and reassurance and just all the love that I needed in that moment. There's a conversation I remember really clearly. There was a day at work I was struggling because I felt selfish. I felt, it was like probably number one feeling out of my trauma was this feeling of selfishness because I had to take all this time to do this healing and ask for all this help and take up so many resources just to be a functional person. And I was telling my sisters about this and we ended up calling and I went for a walk and they gave me the most validation and the most love I've ever received in that moment. And it was so, so, so important for me to hear that. So I'm really grateful to my support system. I could not do anything without them. I know you mentioned that you do feel some anxiety about ever having a child again, and you were able to kind of put that to rest. Is there any other part of it that you've been able to find peace where before it was anxiety? Yes. Um, For a long time after the pregnancy, I really struggled when I got my period, which is a personal topic to discuss on a podcast, but it's about pregnancy. So when I found out I was pregnant, I thought I was on my period and a lot of the symptoms overlap. And so every few weeks or every month, I would freak out that I was pregnant again. I would have a symptom or I would feel super bloated one day or just I would like any little combination of things would freak me out. And the only way I can recover from the thought of, oh, crap, what if I'm pregnant is to take a pregnancy test. So I still actually do that pretty regularly. It's just something I've become accustomed to. It's a really useful mechanism for not being triggered into trauma. I call it going into trauma brain. It Uh it gets me out of that because it's the only way to know that it's not true. Even if there's no possibility or no reality of pregnancy, having a negative pregnancy test is like number one way to be at peace with how I feel. (laughs) Also like knowing getting to know my personal hormonal cycle better. This is actually something I've been researching recently is 
just how our all of our hormones as menstruating people flow throughout a month and how that impacts motivation and physical fitness and then also just general wellness and like it can impact how 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 clean you want to keep your house or little things like that where your small motivation and desires change throughout the month so researching that and getting to know my physical self better has also really helped me have peace with what happens in my body and also just knowing about like what ectopic pregnancy is and how it could i mean one in 80 women experience an ectopic pregnancy that's pretty common and i didn't know anything about it a lot of people don't so doing some basic research on that can just help you be more prepared so what finally gave you the courage to share your story because i know that a lot of people never share about their trauma um and they don't have to you Mm -hmm. know it's personal and and if they, they, everyone recovers in their own way, but what made you motivated to reach out and uh, share your story here on the podcast? I mean, there's a few things. Uh, this podcast, actually, hearing other people's stories was really cool. And I started listening at the beginning and I was like, wait, maybe one day I want to share my story and talk to people about it. So thank you for that. I'm so glad that you have. I don't know. We've only had maybe one or two stories that have really delved into PTSD. So this is really important and valuable. Yeah. There's also someone on Instagram I connected with um, actually more recently who runs a page that shares stories of women who've had ectopic pregnancies and the owner of the page, I reached out to her and we ended up chatting and she ended up having a really, really similar story to mine where she didn't feel like she had lost a baby and it wasn't like, they weren't trying for a pregnancy and she wasn't attached to that idea. And so we were able to validate each other's grief in a way that I hadn't had from anyone else before. And that was really powerful for both of us. So seeing her share her story and other women's stories was pretty motivating. And just seeing all the love and support that people get is awesome. My my workplace actually has made a difference too. I work in this really cool company that actually cares about each other. And we've had some conversations this year about mental health and also specifically about parental leave policy, um, about making it more inclusive. And I brought up making it more inclusive for pregnancy loss. And someone said, yeah, there's a clause about miscarriage. And I said, no, I mean, not every pregnancy loss is a miscarriage. And so I was able to influence policy there or at least have a discussion about it. And so it's just the little things and and being received in the little ways that gave me courage. When you were going through the kind of the zombie period, or you called it trauma mm-hmm. brain, when you were going through the trauma brain period, how did that affect your relationship with your partner who was your pretty probably your closest uh, support system at the time, right, is what I imagine? Yeah, I mean we are no longer together. So there's a lot there. But at the time, I was pretty emotionally dependent. I mean, just generally dependent. And it was really challenging for me to feel dependent on someone else. And so as I started to recover and gain back some of my independence and my sense of self, I really leaned on it and made a really big point of becoming a really independent person. And that was uh, part, definitely not the whole reason, but part of the reason that we 
actually ended up splitting up is because I felt like I had to rebuild myself entirely. And so who I was after was not who I was before. What is your advice to someone who has gone through a traumatic experience similar to what you went through? I spent a long time thinking about this question today because trying to imagine someone else going through the same thing hurts. (laughs) I hope no one ever has to. And that kind of pain, no one deserves to feel. Not even me. I didn't deserve to feel that. (laughs) So I guess what I would try to say to someone is that you are not alone in how you're feeling. It took me a really long time to not feel alone. I mean, basically until this year when I was able to connect with that girl on Instagram and we were able to talk about our similar stories, I had never found someone who had the same story as me. And you might never. I mean, everyone's trauma and everyone's lives are so unique that you're not going to be able to find someone who has everything that you had like the same experiences. So just finding the small validations and finding the ways you're similar to other people is important. I like what you said about how you'll never, you'll never necessarily, or you may never meet somebody who totally identifies with your experience, but you can still know that you're not alone in feeling alone. (laughs) Right. One thing I learned in um, my therapy when I went to the OCD treatment center a couple of years ago was called common humanity. And it was a principle that everybody suffers and everybody feels loss and pain and everybody feels lonely. And these are things that are common to all of humanity. And it's important to remember that sometimes when we're feeling these emotions and fear that nobody understands them is that we share common humanity with every single person around us no our experiences aren't the same and the way we handle them Mm -hmm. is not the same but we are common and we do share that which I think is is a powerful thing to remember sometimes when we play the game of well this person doesn't have problems (laughs) or you know I don't handle this as well as this person does. yeah I mean it I feel like the whole experience opened me up to be more empathetic because I relied on other people's love and support so much that I am now in a place where I can give it more freely. And I'm really happy that I'm able to do that. And I think it has cemented the beauty of common humanity for me, like you said, is that yes, we're all human and we all struggle, but we're all capable of so much love and so much compassion. And so sharing it at every opportunity is just, I mean, what we should do. Right. I actually just had a conversation with some of my old college roommates and one of them is going through a really difficult time right now. And she just said, I feel so humbled to be in this position of always asking you guys for help and for prayers. And we just responded to her and we're like, look, right now it's you. Next week it'll be me. You know, next month it'll be one of, one of us. It, it ebbs and flows. And sometimes you are not going to be in a place where you can give there's just, you just won't be, you may be in a place that is so dark and low that you cannot give anything except just to keep yourself going every day. But then, like you said, when you're on the other side of it, when you've worked hard to recover and to find those things that bring you peace, then you're there in a position to give to somebody who's not. And that's a very basic principle, but I think sometimes we forget that it's okay to not always be at our best. Yeah. I really struggled with that. And so definitely this experience humbled me in that way 
And that's the other piece of advice I would give is that it is okay to accept help. I mean, it's okay to ask for help, but asking and accepting are two different things. And so even sometimes when I ask for help, I'm not good at accepting it. Yeah. Well, is there anything else that you want to share that we didn't touch on? I, this has been just beautiful. I think that's it. I, I mean, I was thinking today about how, I mean, my trauma happened spring last year. I was 19. Now I'm 21. And so it really has defined so many moments of my life. But I realized today that it's not in a bad way. It's It hasn't tainted every moment of my life. It's just set the building blocks and reconfigured my foundation in a way that allows me to be more successful. So when I talk about my trauma, it's not just an event that happened and PTSD isn't just something that I had then, it's something I still have now, but it allows me to be stronger and gives me more moments to grow.